everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles is with me as always. Petros Katupis is joining us again. And today we have a special guest, Chris Brunk, who is a professor in the College of Technology at the University of Houston. Uh, we're going to get into some interesting topics related to disinformation and cybersecurity and a lot of good stuff. But before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that we have a newsletter. So please go to our website at reality2cast, that is the number two in the URL, and sign up for our newsletter. You can also now get some cool swag. Like, you know, you never know when you might want my face on a t-shirt. Maybe that's weird. Anyway, you can follow that link as well. So yeah, let's get started. So Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interests, both academic and not? Okay. Um, So... Why don't we start um, in 1982? Um, well, in, in 1982, I was 10 years old, and like every other red-blooded American kid in 1982, I begged my parents for an Atari 2600 because I didn't have one yet, and that was the year that the price point at Sears was just right, and I was going to get an Apple II for about $200, and um, and uh, under the tree that year. Um, much to my surprise, was not an Atari 2600, but an Apple II. Uh, And that began um, a lifelong experience in computing for me um, that has carried me through a whole bunch of experiences. Uh, I did a startup in the 90s because, you know, you got to have that ticket punched. Uh, Then I did the next logical thing after that, where I was a, a diplomat. I was a foreign service officer for about, well, I guess about five years. And I spent some more time at the State Department as an advisor because you know, internet people don't belong in diplomacy. And then finally, uh, a few years ago, uh, I decided to become a bona fide professor. Um, I did a PhD along the way at Syracuse on cybersecurity and kind of the interdisciplinary uh, nature of it. So not just the, you know, the computer science or, you know, kind of the ones and zeros, but also the, um, uh, the kind of, you know, the the whole socio-technical picture basically. Um, and uh, I came to UH because uh, a friend of mine said, we're going to build a pretty decent cybersecurity program, and it sounded like fun, and I didn't have to move, um, and, uh, and a couple of years ago, they, they gave me tenure, which I guess means that I can, I can say things with an opinion, <laughs> but not in a stupid way. And, and I should so, say, by the way, that you, uh, because we're on Zoom and we can see you, you appear to play bass. Is that right? I, I do play bass. Um, <laughs> I've been playing bass uh, not many years after I got the Apple II. A, uh, a very inexpensive knockoff uh, Fender Precision bass showed up under the tree. And, uh, and now I have, I, I, I'm, I'm officially one of those doctor lawyer jerks who has all the classic guitars, but doesn't play them that much. <laughs> um, so the real practitioners <laughs> in the field are like, oh, is that an original whatever? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. T- you know, to to the last screw. It's like, it's the same as it came off the line in, you know, Fullerton, California in 1976. You betcha. So, and, uh, so be honest with me. Be honest with me. Okay. Are, are you still disappointed you didn't get the Atari 2600? You know, I bought a 2600 when eBay became a thing and it had all the games, like every game. And I was delighted not to get the 2600 because as long as I convinced my parents that, you know, I needed a dozen more, you know, 3M or MSI or whatever uh, floppy disks. I mean, the hacking skills came and I realized how I got software as a minor, of course, 
and this is way outside of the statute of limitations for the, uh, the, um, the uh, I mean, in, in fact, I don't think there was even statute at that point to, to really come down on me for what I was doing. But, uh, you know, I did get the Atari, I got all the games and I put each one in, I'd play it for five or 10 minutes and I'd be like, you know, Atari skiing's kind of lame. <laughs> and and I, I, I remember I pulled out Adventure and put it in and I was like, wait, I'm just a pixel that's like walking around inside this weird maze thing that I can't really see. This, this is awful. <laughs> so I think it was the right choice. My parents, I, I, I give them complete, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, deference on their decision. They did the right thing. Awesome. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for that. Um, sure. So, so let's talk about why I contacted you about doing this podcast. Sure. So you have an, an interest, a- academic and probably otherwise, in disinformation, and especially from a sort of cybersecurity lens. But I appreciate that you mentioned your interest in cybersecurity from a more interdisciplinary perspective, mm-hmm. um, because I think that's really interesting and important. Um, you know, what can you what can you tell us? You know, more about about the kind of stuff that you're interested in right now. And, oh, uh, sorry, the most important thing. Um, why is disinformation more believable? Well, I mean, I like to think of, uh, imagine a knob where you have a ratio that you're establishing from zero to 10. So, you know, your big, you know, you're, you're, you're mixing knob from left to right. And on, on, on your right channel is, or um, of the st- right side of the stereo channel is, uh, you know, the truth and on the left side is BS. And you kind of, you know, figure out how much of each you can put in and mix together to convince people of a thing. And, and we, we can call that rhetoric, right? You know, you, you make statements about a thing, they're believable, and there's narratives and there's study of all that stuff. But um, really where I got into this is um, during the 2016 election, I, um, I convinced um, a social media account or two of mine that I was a very, very activist conservative American, very activist conservative. And I was very surprised at the memes that I started getting and that so many people communicated in memes that really, you know, that memes were now this, this uh, form of communication. In fact, at one point, I told my department mates that I was only going to communicate th- with them in memes. And they were like, please don't do that. Um, <laughs> What's an example of a meme? So a meme is a photograph or an image um, that has text laying over it that s- it sends a message. So a very simple concept. Um, and the, it, it has to be very simple. The image can be very powerful. Uh, so um, it can be a picture of Hitler if you're trying to appeal to anti-Semite neo-Nazi types. It can be red, white, and blue if you want to reach out to patriotic folks or people who think they're patriotic. Um, It can be simple, it can be complicated. And then the idea that's conveyed in text has to be incredibly simple. Uh, It can't be, oh, here's 150 words overlaying on this graphic, because you're you're talking about a a little square that occupies, you you know, 180 by 180 pixels or something, something fairly small. Um, and that's really, that's, that, that became in the 2016 election, the, uh, the medium by which people were immediately marketed, uh, ideas, um, through this combination of a graphical and tech. So it's basically sloganing on a, on a picture. So, so you, so you communicated by memes, so you are, you're, they're, they're reaching out to you by memes 
And so, and, and, and were, were all of them disinformative in some way? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I had a op-ed war with Facebook for a little while uh, over the 2018 election, because when you watch a, a political advertisement, so let's just focus on politics first. Uh, when you see a political advertisement on television, even if your television is being streamed to you by Hulu or somebody, there's that, that you know, you know, there's usually some sort of tagline that's given where the, the, um, the, the candidate says, I approve of this message. And there's a tagline on the bottom of the ad. And you see the same thing in a newspaper, you hear it on radio. And Facebook basically said, we don't need to do that. We can't do that. We can't verify any of this. We can't figure out if, if this is political speech or not. So we're not labeling any of it as political speech. Um, so, but, but the idea was that some of these things probably were fairly incorrect. Um, things about the US-Mexico border, things about uh, immigrants, things about political parties. Uh, they, were, they were not always what I would consider to be on the money correct. Um, but in the world of negative political advertising, that's a, that's a really, that's a many shades of gray of, of, of uh, information that I would, would deem not entirely truthful. Let's unpack this idea of um, disinformation as it relates to security, because, uh, you know, obviously these things have, have impact, significant impact. And how do you view them from the perspective of a security expert? Okay, so um, the simple answer on that is the Democratic National Committee. Um, so uh, what uh, some of my colleagues and I have been doing a lot of talking and thinking about for the last couple of years is repurposing information that's purloined. So um, the New York Times and other major news publications were very willing to take um, email that was taken out of the DNC servers and put it in their news stories you know, about uh, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others who, who said things that didn't necessarily make uh, 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 Bernie Sanders look very good. Um, so it was this idea that, that stuff could be stolen, which is that's the cyber angle, which, you know, I know a lot about that, you know, uh, purloining information off someone's system is something I, I get really well. But then the idea that you repurpose this information in a rhetorical stream to convince people of, of something that may or may not be entirely truthful, but fits your narrative to make them believe a larger message. Uh, do, you, do you feel like that sort of meme level of disinformation is as harmful as other attack vectors? Well, I, I see it as the, it, you know, uh, it, they are, memes are sort of the billboards of social media. Um, you see them a lot. Uh, they float by, you know, just like the real ones do on, on the freeway. Um, so they, they're very much, um, what, what impressed me was that the political organizations that really use social media in 2016, and I'm really pointing a finger at Brad Parscale and the Trump campaign, uh, they knew how to, to unpack um, a message and repurpose it many different ways in many different ads that would attract different people's attention. And then they combine that. So what isn't like a, a, a necessarily a highway billboard is they could target individuals based on their demographics. Um, so I don't know if any of you have ever bought a Facebook campaign. It's, I have. <laughs> it's very instructive on, I mean, I was, you know, I, I used to work in the diplomacy business and I've, I've worked a lot with the intelligence community. I was like, wow, this is awfully granular. 
I sure mm-hmm. can get to people from company X who live in city Y really easily. I just pay money and I get them to get their attention. Interesting. So that was, you know, it was the combination of simple message and highly precise targeting that, that really got my attention. And I found very interesting. Is social media like a security hole by design then? Oh, I don't, I, I, for me to put a simple, I mean, we are talking about the concept of social cybersecurity now, which is when people insert, you know, everything from uh, um, links to obvious malware kind of downloads and stuff like that, which that was a big problem on social media a few years ago. They've gotten better at it, but it's still a problem. So it's like the click the link problem for your email just moves over to your browser. Fortunately, the browsers are getting better, but um but the social media is basically used as this vehicle for you know, not presenting information. I mean, first off, you know, I don't want to get into a section two, 230 debate because I was about, about to that. mention that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to go there. I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to play one uh, on this on mm-hmm. this on, on this program. But essentially, uh, you know, the, the real issue for me is, um, you know, these platforms don't have to you know, make any assertion like the Washington Post cannot run things as either news content or advertising content that are flagrantly untrue or they're labeled as advertising and, and so forth. You know, it's this, you know, squishy, you know, well, we're not responsible for it, but we are a dissemination channel. So there's a, there's a, a gray area there. And then, you know, the other thing that, that we noticed that was going on was uh, action like NATO would have an exercise in Norway and the Russians would do everything possible to make it look like uh, the participants in the NATO exercise, were, you know, some of the countries are doing bad things. Uh, the Russians did a bunch of stuff with the Baltic republics like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, where they would try to, you know, get these stories out there that say a German NATO soldier, you know, went into town in, in Lithuania and, and raped a local teenager or something. And, you know, that Lithuanians should be outraged by the behavior of the soldier and kick out NATO which, you know, for a Lithuanian to do would be absolutely nuts. Um, so it's this idea of inserting, you know, so I try to have a good operating definition of information, misinformation, and um, disinformation. And information is, you know, somewhere between uh, data and knowledge. It's just a, a block of stuff. Disinformation or misinformation is, I heard it wrong, um, generally. So misinformation is something I attribute to confusion, not malice. Um, I see a lot of misinformation um, on, oh, where are those COVID vaccines right now? You know, they're at the football stadium, really? Uh, no, they're not, nope, that's not true. And then disinformation is when as someone is actively applying uh, a, a, a amount of false information or narrative into, into discourse on a thing that's just absolutely untrue and they know it and they're trying to convince you that the untrue item is true for an amount of time. So, you know, taking a step back and going back to social media, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get past the meme BS, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, opened up, I opened up my timeline and people that I like, people that I don't like, you know, it's just you see it and you know that 99.9% of them is just misinformation. But what I've noticed recently is that Facebook is starting to flag things. Mm -hmm. And what is your take on 
how that's being handled and is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I mean, where do you see this going from here? Well, I mean, the immediate uh, retort of, of companies like Facebook, I mean, you know, um, you know, being here in Texas, uh, you, know, you know, when you say the word the death sentence, you know, everyone's like, oh yeah, that time that Southern Methodist got banned from playing football. Um, and so, you know, our contemporary, you know, death sentence for misbehavior in social media now is to be banned, to be barred from, you know, so President Trump is now barred, I guess, permanently from Facebook and, and Twitter, and he has to send out emails saying what he wants to say, um, which muzzles him in a way that, you know, is pretty fascinating. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, I think that these companies are realizing if they just allow for a, a, a free-for-all of, of just everything from untruth of all stripes, basically operating on them without being a responsible uh, intervener, um, that their business model can collapse. Um, you know, I, 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 I invite all of you to read, you know, because Facebook is a publicly held corporation, uh, they, they enumerate all the risks to Facebook going under every year. And it is a, a just a litany of, of things that could go wrong for them that will make them the next iOmega zip drive or, uh, you know, prodigy online. Uh, they are very frightened at the things that will, I mean, in Facebook, is a 1.1 billion or 2.1 billion person, you know, or 2.1 billion account endeavor now. So it kind of seems like, oh, it's never going away. And, you know, when they add all these new, you know, platforms like Instagram, you know, heaven forbid. And, and speaking of Instagram, that is a platform of memes. I mean, that's what it was built for. Uh, so uh, I think there is uh, self-regulation afoot, uh, you know, with the, the idea that uh, it, it should be done to avoid actual real regulation by governments. So I, I have a theory, and I don't know if this just speaks to the, your, uh, the, the original purpose of convening this, which is around cybersecurity. But I, I'm very interested in this, in this um, misinformation, disinformation as a, as a technique, as a, as a you know, um, as a technique for Russia, for any country, I'm not so. I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. does its own disinformation as well, and and how easily people can be made to believe this stuff. But here's a here's a question I have. Since you've been observing Facebook, I have a theory that 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 they can't be fixed. That they actually can't be fixed. If if your business is is advertising to people who are algorithmically nudged toward engagement you're going to want to reinforce engagement no matter how it happens. And if you also have it set up in such a way from the get-go that you really can't, you have so many advertisers and they're so hard to monitor as a, a, a systematically and so easy to game systematically that you just don't do it. I, I, I thought it was a really critical point you made earlier that, um, you know, that if you're, if you're doing a political ad on TV, you have to say, you know, my, my name is Joe Schmo and I approve this message and all that stuff. Whereas on online, you don't have to. And on top of that, you, you may have whole countries coming in and faking up news um, in order to help you out because they don't want the other guy to win or something like that. And it's not, it's, it's like, it's so impossible to monitor that it seems to me that there's something so inherently narrow about what they do that it may collapse of its own weird weight. 
or regulator, regulators come in and just say, screw you. I mean, Tim Wu's in there now. I know Tim Wu, you know, he's probably, he probably wants to break him up. I don't know what you break them into. I mean, what's, what's a piece of a Facebook? You could break away Instagram, but that doesn't change what's wrong with Facebook in the first place. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a book that I assigned last year to my my uh, cyber great books uh, class, which is a very lengthy book, is uh, Shoshana Zuboff's uh, Surveillance yeah. Capitalism yeah. book. I have um, a blurb on the back of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I didn't recall that, but... Uh, it's all know, right. You didn't it, need to read it, is it? <laughs> it, it? It's a fantastic book. I mean, and it's a point she makes in a lot of different ways, but, um, you know, we you know, that advertising model of attention being the the valued uh, you know metric you know that you want people to pay attention to a thing for a period of time and hopefully monetize that attention in some way is interesting and you know I, I read a piece of research I mean so there's a lot of stuff there's the MIT guys who did the paper on Twitter and that that false information spreads across Twitter more quickly than true information because it's sensational uh, you know it's like it's like the rumor that, you know, JLo is dead or something. So she's not dead. She's fine. Um, although I guess she's breaking up with um, A-Rod. So that's over. Um, and I think that's valid information. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not trying to inject misinformation. But there's a, there's a great, uh, uh, you know, the, it, dur during the invasion of Iraq, I guess a rumor spread around our troops that JLo had died. Um, and I always thought that was kind of amusing that a bunch of people out in the, in the desert, you know, were worrying about that not war with Iraq. Um, so I, I think you, you, you make a very solid point that, um, you know, this doesn't seem to be sustainable in some way that uh, uh, just, uh, you know, having platforms that want us to spend all our time on them. And, and the, other, the other thing, I read a, 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 a piece of research recently and it said, well, Facebook wants people to argue because people who are arguing are engaged. I mean, and it's no different than being on, you know, on the street in Cairo or any of these uh, Arab cities where, you know, political argument in cafes or, or it could be, you know, Western European cities too, but the Arab street was always the place you went. Like if you're a diplomat, you need to know what's going on in Beirut. You, you go to go to some cafes and you know pretty fast because people argue quite noisily and, and, and emphatically. This is, this is our street. This is where people argue. And if you if if you're saying that you're going to monetize something and it's people arguing, um, I'm not sure that's good. The thing is that it's like they've created a machine that's really designed to reward or to to attract disinformation and to reward it, and to be and to make it part of the system. I don't think that's what they wanted to do in the first place. It's what algorithmically works out because people, it, it, it becomes our street. I mean, it might as well just be called street book, right? Because right. that's at least in the, in the Arab street sense where people go there to have political arguments, but then they get, but then they get herded in, you know, by homophily, you tend to group with your own kind to a giant amen corner of one kind or another. Um, the, I guess the, the question I have, and it's probably not an answerable one until it actually happens is whether or not that's a fatal flaw. Or is, it, or is it just a really great design and it just amplifies the tendency of humans to gossip and that's gonna be, that's fine. That's what we do. I would suggest this. So uh, one of the set of papers that I worked on about a decade ago, uh, we had a, a grad student uh, in the cyber security lab at Rice when I was there who was very interested 
I think his, his spouse was a Falun Gong sympathizer and she was very interested in how uh, Falun Gong search terms uh, were censored by China. And this is when there was still a google.cn that operated in China. So that gives us a pretty strong piece of evidence that if you have that censorship capability, uh, you know, which the Chinese government, you know, so China doesn't allow Facebook, but they have, you know, Chinese, you know, it's that, that joke from Silicon Valley, it's, there's Chinese everything. There's, there's Chinese Facebook, <laughs> there's Chinese Twitter, you know, so there are all these platforms that are parallel platforms to what we have here uh, that, you know, the Chinese ban them and then they create their own. I, I guess they never created a, a PRC Wikipedia, which I think is their loss, but that's another story. But yeah, without that highly intrusive, um, straitjacketing force of a totalitarian government, um, uh, I think that becomes very difficult to moderate. And then the other side of it is, I mean, you, if you look at, I mean, I think Chinese people like to have political debate as much as any other people on, on the planet. I work with lots of Chinese Americans and, and Chinese nationals who are, who've come here to work and lots of Chinese students. And they like to argue too. But, you know, I think the question that I would throw back that's also unanswerable is, um, you know, is our, our culture of political argument and the culture wars that we see, you know, I'm in Texas where we had this, this you know, weather disaster a couple of weeks back and, you know, our governor immediately went to, oh, everyone take off your masks. That's all better. And I think that's kind of a, a you know, I think the you know, techies would call that a pivot. But I, I would call that a, a, you know, a sideshow or a smokescreen or something to distract us. Um, and I don't think that um, you know, when it was three channels of news plus the PBS guys when I was a kid, that stuff didn't get that, that kind of discourse I don't think existed in the same way in this country that it does now. Um, it still drives me nuts that news stations are always like, check us out on Facebook. And it's like, wait, you used to own this space and now you're just giving it to those guys. Um, and, uh, you know, there, I think there, there are many problems, but, but essentially it all boils down to, um, uh, you know, what is the definition of yelling fire in a crowded theater in social media space today? Maybe it's nothing but yelling fire in yeah. a crowded theater. <laughs> it's different, different colored yeah. fire. <laughs> so the other, the other thing I wanted to make sure we, we got into before we have to wrap is um, unless actually, Doc, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about in, in terms of disinformation and that sort of thing? Or no, I think I think we touched on a lot of it. I, you know, okay. I, a lot of it's just unanswerable. I think we just have yeah. to sort of wait and see how it works out. I'm, I'm, I mean, personally speaking, I'm just not a, I'm not a big believer in the in the regulatory answer in part because I think most regulators don't understand tech very well, or economics, and but worse. You tend to, you know, every new law protects yesterday from last Thursday and, and lasts for hundreds of years, you know. So um, Section 230, I mean, is an interesting law and we're still living with it. You know, we're mm -hmm. still living with the DMCA. If you want to know why we don't have music podcasts, well, look at copyright laws. It was as was laid out in the 90s and the DMCA, you know, I mean, yeah. it, 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 it's and, and we don't even re realize that's what was behind it. So I don't, I don't know. I don't have an easy answer. I, it is fascinating to me. I mean, actually what I could ask you, Chris, is actually going back to your diplomatic thing. So do you, do you buy, I, I assume, I assume you do, but I don't really know that, that, that the Russians were very active in, in, in the last election and we're actually expert at playing Facebook and playing the social media. 
Um, yes. So uh, a million years ago, I got to do a, a study abroad at Oxford University, and uh, it was right, it was right at the very tail end of of that thing, the Soviet Union. And I, I was one of those people that you know, I I I had read too many Tom Clancy books as a teenager, and John Licare books and other things like that. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to stick it to the Soviets and be right, you know, and and. Uh, and, you know, and, and fight against what I believed was a, a, a very wrong system. Um, and, you know, what I learned in studying the Soviets was that they were exceptionally good at, um, and Thomas Ridd over at Georgetown has written a great book called Active Measures. It's all about how this, basically how the Soviets screwed with West Germany in the 1950s to 80s, you know, playing with their political system, um, which they were trying to figure out. Um, and I think the, the Russians have always been extraordinarily good at, um, you, know, the, you know, essentially disseminating propaganda, you know, propaganda of the Communist uh, International um, from, from you know, the, the very beginning of the Soviet regime. Um, and then um, the second element uh, that the Russians, if you start digging into like how Russians do uh, statecraft and war, there's a, there's a, a concept of theirs called Maskirovka. Which is the the idea that you're you're trying to in some way alter uh, the what is known uh, by 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 measures you put out there so that you confuse your adversaries, um, and that can be stealing information from the the Democratic National Committee and then putting it out on on the WikiLeaks website. Which oh by the way you know after the U.S. banks you know were blocked from you know allowing credit card transactions to pay WikiLeaks donations to keep them operating. You know, there was a pretty good paper trail on, you know, Russian eh, oligarchic interests, you know, passing money to uh, Assange and company. And I, you know, I don't want to get into a, a, a slings and arrows on is, is Assange a good guy or a bad guy? I have a strong opinion in it, but it doesn't really matter. But um, these platforms, you know, the radical, you know, I, I, you know, you know, I call them radical transparency platforms. And as a diplomat, I don't believe in radical transparency because making policy is not always a pretty thing and not everyone probably should, should or wants to know. But, you know, and the, the real problem is that you can take pieces of that, that, that policy creation process and, you know, you can, you can manipulate it to something that, that you use to, to serve your agenda. I mean, it, the irony is, you know, we also have, a, a, what was it, a, Podesta's recipe for risotto got out because, you know, his Gmail account got hacked. And that's just funny. But, you know, the idea that the guy who's in the driver's seat for the Democratic, uh, you know, the, the Clinton campaign, you know, his Gmail gets nailed and that's weaponized against the campaign. That's a big deal. And that's where the cyber intersects with the informational information disinformation piece. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the other thing that, that I mentioned, you know, I wanted to make sure we made time for was a, a, something we talked about offline, and that is acoustic sensing and security and certain vulnerabilities we may have in our IoT devices, things that we have around the house, um, that sort of thing, our, our personal mobile devices, etc. And I, I thought, you know, I think that's an interesting uh well, it's an interesting vulnerability that I don't think people immediately think about. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, putting on my security hat, any one authentication um, uh, factor or vehicle is bad. Um, 
And like anyone else, when the version of the iPhone came out that had the facial recognition um, authentication, I mean, my first response was, oh, it's not going to work right. Nothing, nothing like that ever works right. I've, you know, I worked in speech recognition in the 90s. And it was like, it would work, but it took a lot of like training of, of, uh, of computer models with lots of different audio types. And it's like, oh, we have the Japanese guy say it again. So we get that more right, you know? And, uh, you know, so to authenticate solely on voice is interesting. Um, uh, and, you know, we just had a, a wonderful researcher who came through and gave a talk at my school last week, I think talking about, you know, the acoustical, you know, and, you know, something coming out of your mouth that is heard by a microphone on one of your devices has different qualities than playing the exact same, you know, um, utterance through a loudspeaker, because that loudspeaker is a, it's a it, it operates on a single axis, whereas, whereas your voice is this complicated biological machine that has all these different parameters to it. Your ear is also that, you know, complicated in a way that, that a speaker diaphragm is, is not. So, you know, the, the crux of security there is, you know, how do I defeat someone replicating my voice to break into my thing? Um, then the broader issue, and I think you mentioned, was um, also the problem of these always-on devices and the privacy ramifications and the, the discoverability issues. And, you know, we've already seen court cases where, you know, somebody gets murdered at home and it's like, wait, this person has all these you know, beacon devices, things from manufacturers X, Y, and Z in their house. Do they have the goods on who the murderer is and do we wanna know that? So, so it's a multi, when we start looking at the acoustical elements of security, it's kind of a multi-phase problem that covers a lot of terrain as well. So, you know, how, how concerned should I mean, okay, so backing up a little bit, we, we talk about these types of devices all the time. We talk about ring devices, we've talked about the Amazon flying ring device, um, and poked a little fun at it. We've talked about wearables, and we have talked about uh, the Alexa Echo devices that I think, well, Petros may have one, Doc and I don't have them because they're creepy. I don't, but a lot of people do. No. I, I refuse to I have either. those devices okay. in my house. The only thing that's always listening is just my smartphone. That's it. Mm. Yeah, and so, I, actually, I shut off my smartphone uh, acoustical um, trigger because I just, it creeps me out. Yep, it's creepy. Um, and the iPhone is actually pretty good. Uh, it's, it's Facebook, the Facebook app that is uh, creeping me out. But everything else on the iPhone is actually pretty, pretty decent in terms of spying. But in your opinion, how, how, how concerned should, should people be about having these types of device, devices? What steps should they be taking to make sure they're not giving up a little bit more than they realize? I, I, in general, I don't believe people understand well when they, when they are, are trading away their privacy. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I don't want to plug for any company, but Apple has definitely made privacy, you know, when the San Bernardino uh, shootings occurred, mm -hmm. That were you know labeled as a terror event. I, I'll, I'll I'll accept the FBI's categorization there. That that you know that there was ample evidence of that. Um, you know Apple said we're not going to to break the the module you know that's going to give you a passphrase on it. And then the FBI essentially said, well we know some Israeli dudes and they're really yeah. clever. So <laughs> buzz off, have a nice day, because um, there's always some clever dudes someplace that can figure something out. But um, you know the. The issue for me is, you know, yes, 
and start, you know, and my, my model for everything is always like, well, how does it work in Star Trek, the next generation? <laughs> how did they do that? Oh, you know, and, and I remember a colleague of me, you know, do, you know, Amazon programmed the, the Picard T uh, prompt uh, with response for the, the replicator and the device in their version 1.0. And I was like, oh, that's very clever. I still don't like it, but that's clever. You know, that, that appeals to me because I watched all of those shows in the 1980s or 90s or whenever they came on. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that um, we're always looking for a way to, to break ourselves of the user interface for the computer that we've had since the 1970s, you know, a keyboard and some sort of pointing device, uh, you know, and I have colleagues who, who write paper after paper using dictate software and I just can't do it. It just, because it's always like, oh, why did it put a period there? And it still screws up. But when it's perfect, will I want to use it? Maybe, you know, I've got tendonitis. I play bass. I mean, my, my tendonitis is <laughs> awful. Uh, typing for me is not forever, probably, nor driving. And, and that's really, you know, so when we start to worry about these things and how they operate, um, you know, once again, when I put my cybersecurity hat back on, it's like, you want all these devices to talk to each other in some way? Oh, brother, good luck. Um, because, you know, while we have Apple marketing on privacy to a degree, I don't think any company can make a pitch to me that, unless it's a security company saying, oh, well, security is a feature for us at, at, at our company. And uh, I just, I don't, I don't buy it. I, you know, when a, a purveyor of something other than security products comes to me and says, oh, security is really important here. I'm like, okay, well, I'll take that with a grain of salt for now, but, you know, prove it to me and I'll feel better. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, what's funny, you mentioned, uh, you know, t typing won't be forever and, and neither will driving. And, and th that makes me think there, you know, there are so many great applications for a lot of these types of technology for it in terms of use in assistive technology. Mm -hmm. There's an accessibility angle for sure. But, you know, I, the, the cynic in me just wonders, you know, if, if we're responsible humans, I mean, if we're responsible enough to have a all of these great things exist without exploiting them in some way. You know, I took offense to that comment because I live in the command line. I will mm -hmm. always be typing. Mm. Always. Well, you know, except when, you know, <laughs> except when you can prompt the command line, you know, and, uh, you know, and when it has an assistive logic for when you get to be my age and you're like, what's, what's the Linux command that, that deletes this, but stores a copy how, can, can I get SSH to work some way to do this thing I want? You know, I don't remember, remember. I mean, I've been away from the command line. I mean, I, you know, I, I get back to it from time to time. Um, but, you know, my, my fluency is not as good. And if there's a, a cognitive enhancer for me that allows me to have that capability, you know, I'm going to want it. Um, but yeah, I think it really does come down to as the computer does more. You know, I think already the smartphone is a cognitive and enabling device. It's changing the way our brains are wired. I think um, there's some interesting research on that as well. Um, I'm not sure I buy all of it, but the idea that that device that's in your pocket is trying to be um, <clears throat> uh, kind of intuitively, um, you know, approaching you and understanding what you want and delivering it to you. You know that is happening. Yeah, yeah. I think you know there are there are certain boundaries. I feel like we all need to uh, to put in place that I don't know. I think <laughs> not to bring up something totally not safe for work, but I think there's a guy somewhere who got his um, penis cage hacked. Who who is a good uh, good example of why we need to 
I don't know, be a little bit more concerned about the devices that we're, we're relying on in our lives and what they are capable of. Is what hacked? Is penis cage? Oh, you didn't hear about that? Yeah, there's some kind of like sex toy that like puts your stuff in a cage and locks it up and somebody hacked oh it and literally held this junk for ransom. Oh my God, that's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That happened. I didn't even know that was possible, but that it is possible. Yeah, that what, is possible. What news sites are you reading, Catherine? <laughs> what? It was a security thing. Totally so it'd be real. really interesting well, to I see mean, if that's uh, no, it's totally a thing. I'll link to it, but you know. It, so it, that that basically means that you have to change the default password on your junk. Basically, <laughs> basically. But hey, you know, I, I think you need two-factor authentication to operate. Yeah, two-factor. You got to send I, me a text <laughs> message, or that thing's not coming off. Got it? I am. Um, oh man. You know, I, I tell people who are you know, I I am not a security expert. I am interested. And uh, you know, the last DefCon, I wandered in with 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 a friend to the um, medical hacking mm -hmm. village, which is you know it's they do a lot of you know there's there's a lot of great work happening there you know that's that benefits a lot of people, but at the same time, as a novice, it's terrifying. Like it, you go in and you just the thought of it is terrifying, and and um, as, yeah, it just as... kind of t changes the way you think about technical devices and and. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I mean, sorry. So, so here's a question for, for you, Chris, that because this is sort of where I'm coming from, and it may not be a tenable position, which is that privacy is, is, is basically personal, and we should have control over our privacy at our end. In other words, as long as you're, in fact, I wrote a piece at Linux Journal about this, that if your privacy is up to others alone, you don't have any, which is, you know, so... It, it doesn't matter what every company's privacy policy is if I have to deal with every company differently and I have a different trust metric for all of them and, and, and they can change it at any time that they want when what I really need is something on my device that prevents them from doing whatever it is I, I don't want them to do. And ideally, that's what we want. I mean, because our, our phones, for example, we feel like they're an extension of us, which is you know, which Marshall McLuhan says, all, all technology extends us, you know, mm -hmm. I've been drinking from a cup, you know, I have the capacity to hold water because I've got a cup, right? And I can't do that with my hands, but that extends me. Well, our phones extend us in all kinds of ways, but they also are full of suction cups on the tentacles of countless companies, most of which we don't even know are there. And they're infected with all these things that are busy following us everywhere. And it's pretty creepy. And we should have full control over that. And as Petrus is saying, Apple gives us a few more controls over that, but there's still a bag of, of, of apps and those apps can do all kinds of stuff that probably they can't even monitor that well. But if we had real prophylaxis at our end, if we had real policy control at our end, where we couldn't even put in an app that's gonna harm us, or we would have enough filtering of some kind, policies on our end, where if they don't comply with, with that in a way we can audit, they wouldn't even get in. But almost nobody's talking about this possibility, which is amazing to me because these are personal devices and we are people, you know? They're, they're kind of niche uh, products. So obviously Apple's a walled garden, you know, yeah. what Cupertino wants to integrate, it integrates and builds. And then the, the option B is we're gonna, I'm gonna take uh, the Samsung Tizen operating system off the table and whatever the Huawei operating system is, I'm gonna junk that too. Although it's, it's, it's advancing rapidly. Um, so that means picking on Android. 
And Android, you know, so I worked with a PhD student years ago on uh, and did an article for, for First Monday, which is one of my favorite kind of internet culture journals, um, all about um, adware on smartphones. And, you know, on the Android phone that, you know, AdMob and the other ad libraries are, you know, they're like any other software library on a computing device, but their sole purpose is to serve up ads. And we were doing a, a research review about, you know, catalog, you know, we built virtual phones, the student did all this great work. And, you know, he was like, okay, so this, the, these, these apps use these ad libraries, these apps use those, these, these uh, libraries don't serve up ads. What are they doing? And that was kind of the crux of the research. It was like, so you have things masquerading as advertising vehicles that are obviously not. Um, and that's not going to go away. I mean, and we do, the, we see the seams of this, you know, once again, Apple's privacy war with the rest of the Valley, where it's saying, you know, we're gonna go to war with Facebook because we think that they're manipulating our platform for their, their business ends and we don't like how they do it. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, I don't see Apple throwing Facebook off the device anytime soon, but could it happen in the future? Maybe. The, the interesting thing with Apple is that they, all they did was announce that they're getting rid of the ID for advertisers, the IDFA, which is an appalling thing that never should have been in there in the first place. And ha had they been mindful of privacy back when they invented that thing, they probably would never would have put it in there in the first place. But Facebook is like, all, oh my God, they're going to kill us because they're taking off this thing that yeah. allows us to target. Well, I think, um, I don't know, we've covered a lot. We, we should do it again, but I, I think for now... Uh... We've, we've hopefully given our listeners some, some, some interesting stuff to think about. For all the tech we have in our society, we sure don't talk about tech and society together very much. Wow. That, is, that, is that too long for a title? That was, that, that was a great, I think that was, man, <laughs> that was a great yeah. final note. Thanks for that. Sure. Um, maybe, maybe my next NSF proposal. Who knows? So thank you, Chris, for joining us. And thank you, Petros, as always. And thank you to Doc. Um, for everyone listening, I hope we have inspired and, and given you a few things to think about. We always love feedback. Uh, you can reach us all over social media. Just look up Reality2 Podcast um, anywhere you are. You can find us through our website, reality2cast.com. You can reach us via email at info at reality2cast.com as well. And we love feedback and suggestions and even show ideas. Uh, so please keep in touch and thanks so much for listening.